Historically and today, our country has been overrun by those with money and power, giving little voice to the everyday American. We're here to change that. Welcome to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. Each week, our program addresses the problems we are facing in our country, as well as thought-provoking and effective libertarian solutions. This could change the way you see opportunities in your life and your children's lives as well. Now, here is Judge Jim Gray. Hello and welcome wherever you are in our great country or around the world, actually. This is Judge Jim Gray, as you heard on the promo on the Voice America Variety Channel. Just always fun to be with you, bringing many, many interesting guests. And today, of course, is no exception. This is a man that really has true deep libertarian credentials. It's Commissioner Jim Turney. He's from Altamont Springs in uh, in Florida, and he is a commissioner, basically, as I understand it, which is kind of like being on the city council. But Jim Turney, it's T-U-R-N-E-Y. It goes back. He, he grew up, as I understand it, in the Carolinas, Texas, Virginia, that sort of thing. And then his family moved to Altamont Springs, 1969. And through that time, I guess his mother taught at a high school and his father was a successful audiovisual business in the community. Jim, gradu- talk about credentials, he graduated from James Madison University, 1972, so uh, he, that's certainly a great libertarian thinking organization. Got his BA in political science, working actually at the same time, and he'll, he'll hear his, uh, his radio voice today on commercial radio as a country music disc jockey. And then after that, he was in the Army as an ATC, as we used to call it, air traffic controller 1973 to 76 then started his own expanded the family business start started a tape duplication company that was basically the first to offer video civil court reporting services uh, we certainly saw those happening in our court system where we're running court reporters out of business and I bet that uh, Jim Turney has been doing the same thing but talk about his credentials then he was elected the chairman of the Libertarian Party National Committee in 1985 re-elected which is kind of unusual in itself in 1987, and then what served also on the board of directors for this group called Normal. It's the National Organization for Reform of Marijuana Laws. I'll bet, Jim, that you knew my friend and still do, Dale Geringer from Normal, but uh, then founded a company again. He's an entrepreneur called Listserv, specializes in email broadcasting services, then worked with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, talk about libertarian credentials, and then started doing some produced training for congressional legislative staff, and then finally decided to uh, to move around the world, had a job with the Dutch Investment Fund, as I understand it, and then brought his family, came back to Altamont Springs in 2015, and he's returned to be that commissioner. So with all of that, uh, I, I feel like I've almost run out of gas already, Jim Turney, because of your credentials, <laughs> well, I've gone through a lot of these, but welcome did. to All Rise, and thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. It's an honor, and, and thank you for that reminder of uh, all those things in the past. You have me doing flashbacks here already in my mind <laughs> to think well, back on all of those things. You did a good job, though. That was a very comprehensive review. So, Jim, so I, pleasure I, to be with I, you. There's something that really, I think, set me apart from a lot of other people at an early time in my life. Maybe I was in high school, maybe early college, when I realized that 
you, a bad thing that can happen to a person is to be on your deathbed, look back over your life and think, I would have, I wish I would have, or I wish I would not have. I'll bet that if you were at that point looking back over your life, you wouldn't have many I wish I would haves or I wish I would not haves. Is that accurate? Yes, it is. I've really been blessed to do a lot of travel in many places of the world, especially the European theater, you could say, and um, of course across the U.S., and North America as well, and made many friends, and um, so I am so uh, fortunate. I many times wonder, is there a city out there somewhere where I don't have somebody I can call up and say, hey, I'm coming through town, can I stop in and visit and not be welcome? And that just happened an hour ago, and uh, I, I was calling somebody to say, hey, maybe I'll pop in in the next couple of days. Yep, they said, come on over. So I'm really lucky. It's uh, fantastic to have that kind of warm network. And uh, so from doing a lot of things, many of the things you listed, and, and a lot of travels in between. So I'm a lucky well, guy. I've done a lot. I'm, I'm, I love life. Let, let me tell you that you certainly have that warm welcome here in Orange County, California. If you're at anywhere close, uh, please, please come and join us. But okay, so I'm going to ask you what I ask a lot of other people who say they've traveled quite a bit. And Jim Turney, where's the most fascinating place you've ever been in your life? And you can define fascinating any way you want to. That's a frequently asked question of me, and it's one of the most difficult questions to answer because I really love almost everywhere I've been, and I guess I'm just one of those people who tries to see uh, the benefit of being where I am and every day. I look for that um, kind of reward wherever I am, and so I really am. It's a tough question to answer, um, well, but... Uh, I have to say there's a couple of places that, based on my behavior, and I'll use that as the, my, my desire to stay or to go back frequently, if that's a criteria, you would have to say um, the Mediterranean region. I spent, uh, lived for a while in the Mediterranean in the country of Cyprus. Um, I stayed much longer than I had anticipated when I first went there. I've been many times to Morocco. I uh, spent a lot of time in Spain, uh, did a lot of libertarian activity in the south of France for 15 years in a row every summer at the University of Aix-en-Provence. So spent a lot of time in Italy, loved Italians, and have many friends there. So I guess the Mediterranean area, all sides, have been uh, a real go-to place for me. Well, you're you're bringing back memories for me. We've been to I've not been to to Cyprus, but I've been elsewhere. But but uh, so people turn the tables on me and say, "All right, Gray. Well, I gave you mine. Uh, what if it's yours? And mine is Turkey. Uh, Istanbul is fascinating, but that's not the reason for my answer. Uh, it's the uh, Asian side of Turkey. But I find that Cappadocia and Ephesus and those places too. Or have you ever been to Turkey? I have. I haven't spent as much time there as I would like. However, I should point out that um, one-third of Cyprus, which is a divided <laughs> country with a wall going across it and the UN, the oldest UN peacekeeping mission going back to 1963 or 64, is uh, there in in Cyprus. So you can go literally walk across this um, green line, as some people call it, this uh, 
uh, demarcation zone. And uh, you're, in a sense, you're in Turkey because uh, things are much more like Turkey there um, than on the Greek side of the island. Uh, so it's uh, so in that sense, I've been to Turkey a lot. Uh, but in terms of proper Turkey, I haven't gotten quite as well-traveled as you have, apparently, there. But I've loved it. It is a beautiful country, wonderful people. Uh, Istanbul, especially, is uh, one of the few really big cities which I find intriguing. It's well, a nice indeed. place to visit. It's the only country in the world that exists on two continents, too, of course, as you know, because Istanbul is in the European side, and then there's the Asian side. But actually, here on All Rise, last uh, April 10th of this year, we had the consul general uh, from Turkey, uh, Khan Orgus, Kirkisa, be with us. And the first thing I asked him before we got into kind of politics and, and the rest was a travel log. And uh, so he, he just bragged legitimately about Turkey. But, okay, give us give us a little more background on Jim Turney then and tell us how you became a libertarian, Jim, because you and I have traveled to the same destination, but I think by, by different routes. How did you become a libertarian? I got really lucky, as I often have in my life. Um, I was curious about the uh, political thing going on in 1964. I knew nothing really about politics, but I'd grown up in Texas, and we'd just moved to Virginia. And uh, suddenly there was this Texan who I thought I knew all about, but uh, discovered I didn't, running for president. Of course, Lyndon Johnson we're talking about, running technically, I guess you could say, for re-election, because he had obviously taken office the previous November, end of November, after the assassination of John Kennedy. But so I, uh, I was curious about um, about this guy and, and about this guy who was running against him from Arizona. And I stumbled across in very fortuitously uh, in, in trying to learn about their campaigns into the Foundation for Economic Education, which was already going strong. Uh, by then, it's still going strong, I'm glad to say. And they had, Leonard Reed there in the 1950s had uh, really, he, you know, that everybody was calling themselves classical liberal back in the 30s and 40s. And he was saying, uh, we need another word because the word liberal has kind of been captured. And so he came out with some essays um, that promoting the term libertarian. And so uh, I stumbled into the, um, the mailing list, you could say. I started reading the Freeman, where there were articles about this, you know, this ideology, if that's what you want to call it, or political philosophy called libertarianism. And um, the thing that really, I guess, was the big hook was he had just finished a translation of a very, very rare and hard-to-find book at the time, even in France, called The Law by Frederick Bastiat. And so it was really not widely known in France or in the U.S. or anywhere at the time. And they did a translation, which is still the common one that you find in English today. And uh, I read that and no, haven't looked back. Um, so Fee, honestly, I can give them credit for um, introducing me to the word as a concept and um, a good foundation. So that's where I got started back in 1964 with the Foundation for Economic Education. 
You sure have me beat. Uh, I, I was a lifelong Republican until the passage of the so-called Patriot Act uh, in 2001. And uh, so you beat me by, by decades. Uh, I, I, and I, I can look back to 1964 and, and Goldwater got decimated in the election, but it's, he's been proven to have been right. Uh, I know he got in for a lot of heat on various things that he that he somebody said, most of which he didn't. But uh, yeah, Lyndon Johnson just just trounced him. But I, I read a book called Goldwater. It was by Barry Goldwater. It's actually with a fellow named Jack, Jack Casserly. But but he's just been shown that he was just he was right on the money and, and literally as well as figuratively. So good for you. Yeah, so straight from the libertarian uh, kind of persuasion that he seemed to generally uh, adhere to, uh, that's when he made his mistakes. And um, he, his uh, uh, chief speechwriter back in 64 was Carl Hess, who uh, had been an editor of Newsweek magazine back, many people today will go, what, Newsweek, is that still published? But it's, uh, I guess it's still out there. But anyway, in the 50s, it was, when he was editor, it was a premier world-class publication, a very exalted uh, role that he had there as editor, um, high profile. But he became a personal hero of mine over the 60s. I met him in 1969 at the Young Americans for Freedom National Convention, where he led a walkout of the libertarian contingent, and that is what many people consider that moment um, to be the the beginning of the modern libertarian movement, precipitated the Libertarian Party, according to David Nolan, in some respects, and other organizations as well, like the Reason Foundation and and uh, other organizations that have since folded up. But um, it was a seminal moment, and uh, Carl Hess uh, was the leader. And then I was lucky enough to convince him to come to the Libertarian Party, which he had shied away from political parties. But when I was national chair, we needed all hands on deck to save the party because things had uh, were rough. Uh, we were still a very new party, of course, and, and we were going through a rough spot. And he came on as editor of Libertarian Party News, our monthly newspaper. This was before the Internet, so the newspaper was a particularly high-profile uh, uh, way of communicating. And so, uh, uh, so that Barry Goldwater, uh, race, uh, some indirectly at least had some very profound effects, um, positive effects for me. Yes, indeed. So uh, you tell, tell us, cause we asked this question quite a bit on all rise with the idea being behind the show that if we employ libertarian values, approaches, principles, we will all rise together, which is is what I truly believe, but what is your view, Jim Turney, on the differences between the libertarians on the one hand and other political parties on the other? Because I believe we're the only mainstream political party in our country today. But but what is your view as to explain what you view as the different approaches by libertarians as opposed to the other political parties? Well, uh, that's a tough question because there's a lot of elements to it. There's you know, perception is often reality in politics, and so you've got the perception element, and you've got the reality element. It, members of the Libertarian Party and those of us who work so hard to keep it going and uh, promote it and make it a success uh, have a very different view of the party than than the general public. And one of the key elements that makes a difference, since that's your question, between the Libertarian Party and the Republicans and Democrats, is that they have 
been around for so long, and people are so familiar, they think, at least, with the with them, that uh, they're just they're just part of the political scenery. They're always there. There are a few areas where one party really dominates, of course, but still everyone knows that there are those two parties. And they don't perceive us as yet, quite yet, most people don't, as being, I call it part of the political scenery. In other words, taken for granted as just, yes, the, of course the libertarians are there. Of course we know who they are. Um, they're an option to vote for. We're not quite there yet, and that's a really important milestone for the Libertarian Party that we really need to reach for, in my view, because, and as long as we continue to put forward candidates, even when they don't get elected, but when they are, the public becomes more and more aware of the party and the Libertarian ideas, and they see that we are a reasonable alternative to consider, even though they're not ready to consider voting for us yet, but they think, yes, this this party... Uh, don't agree with them on everything, but uh, they're a reasonable alternative. They're there. They're an option, at least for some people. And the longer we can maintain that uh, until a tipping point comes, and I believe one day a tipping point will come, but I don't think we'll be able to predict when it is, nor will we be able to create that moment, unfortunately. It'd be nice. Uh, I'd, I'd work on that if I knew how to go for that, but it'll be basically beyond our control. And when that day comes, uh, if we are ready, if we're still considered a credible alternative by a large number of um, a large portion of the electorate, then uh, I think uh, we'll be able to take advantage of it. That'll be a critical time period uh, whenever it comes. So we need to stay ready. Uh, That's a critical message from me that I try to pass on to libertarians and and candidates for office. Um, so that's, and, but that's a difference between us and the Republicans and Democrats. They don't have that. They don't have to worry about that aspect of, of their presence and, sure. and their, and their issues. So they can be, they can be, you know, all over the place. We've seen, and in, in my lifetime, we've seen, uh, in the South, I'm from the South. And as you pointed out in your, their sketch of my life, they're moving around a lot in the South of the U S and it used to be the solid South. We called it. And there were conservative Democrats in office. They were very different than the Democrats, for example, in the Northeast and the Republicans in the Northeast, uh, were, uh, more, um, a little more uh, on the left or mainstream, not so conservative anyway, and didn't even like that word uh, to describe themselves, but they were still Republicans. And that has changed a lot. The America has become very polarized, starting especially in the 60s, and obviously still is, and we're in a very polarizing moment at the, at the right now with Donald Trump especially. So we have... Uh, you know, a lot of Republicans are, um, you know, uh, appear to be finally unified and Democrats uh, a little less so maybe on their um, messaging. Uh, but libertarians are very unified on their messaging. And that's a very important thing, I think. But we do need to be careful to be inclusive with our messaging because it's easy for people in a polarized environment to want to pigeonhole us. And that is there's benefits and problems with that. So we need to be very careful about it. So it's a very complex subject. I'm just rambling on it now, but I think it's... Well, there, uh, 
difficult question to answer briefly. I, I can tell you that Thomas Jefferson said after the Constitution was passed that we're going to need to have a bloody revolution every generation to keep the vested interests at bay. And I would quickly say that the Constitution keeps that revolution from having to be bloody, but how long has it been? And you, you touched on this as well, Jim, but how long has it been since we've had a political revolution? Probably since the 1860s when the Republicans took over from the Whigs. And look at the vested interests today, including the two main political parties. And it's just the so I, I see a major difference between libertarians and other political parties as libertarians do not want to profit by being involved in government. They just want to level the playing field, have equal opportunity for everyone, get government out of, as as one of my campaign workers said, get government out of our bedrooms, out of our wallets, out of our businesses, and out of our way. So that we would literally reduce the intrusion, the, the cost, the scope of government and not profit by being involved with it. And, and uh, all other political parties, they they spend money like crazy on different people, different constituents, but they're anxious to spend that government money. I, I anticipate that you see that as quite a difference between us and the rest. Fair enough? Fair enough. A very good description. Um, I think that uh, many times I look at, I'm asked about particular policy positions um, and um, not necessarily in the context of what would libertarians say, but I find that um, almost always the problem is uh, would be minimized, at least. No problems can be eradicated 100% in life, but um, you but if we had less government dealing with it, we would we would have a better a chance at dealing with the problem because the the governments, the laws, the regulations often exacerbate the problems. Drug laws are a classic example of that. They create more harm to society than the drugs do. Um, yes. So we we have to think about that all the time and remind people of that. The Libertarian Party is by far the best vehicle Americans uh, can go to for, for that kind of uh, not profiting from uh, because we would take the government out of many situations it's in that create the opportunity for somebody to profit. And I can assure you if the Libertarian Party controlled Congress and the presidency, there would still be people claiming to be libertarians, whether or not they really were, who'd be trying to profit from it. It's just of part of the humanity. But we would have, if we succeeded in decreasing the power of government in our tenure, then they would have less opportunity for that profit. Well, Jim, I, I a year and a half ago or so, tried to write out what I saw would be a libertarian world. Who would be the winners? Who would be the losers? I've mentioned it several times here on All Rise, and I'll mention it again. I, it came out to be one man's libertarian white paper. And for anyone interested, you can go to judgejimgray.com, and one man's libertarian white paper is there. And it, it showed who would be the winners, who would be the losers. And the losers would basically be you know, the crony capitalists, the ones that are given all this money by government in one fashion or another and profit by government. It's also, of course, teachers that can't teach because they're protected in today's world, and the bureaucrats. Uh, and pretty much the winners would be everybody else. And I just commend it to you because that's at least at least my attempt at doing this. And also a difference would be that, as you know, I was involved with the recent election campaign for the nomination for president as a libertarian and submitted myself happily to what we call AMAs. 
and that means ask me anything. You don't know in advance what's, what the questions are going to be, and that's great. So will you be involved with AMAs, which is healthy? You, know, you don't have scripted results. You don't know what the question is to begin with or beforehand. And I'll bet you, Jim, any, anything, anything whatsoever that Trump and Bidens of this world will not submit themselves to AMAs in the, in the campaign, which is yet another difference. And, and it's, it, the people lose because of that. Also because, of course, of the pre- so-called Presidential Debates Commission. Uh, that's a rigged system as well in favor of the vested interests. But you were, you were elected for – you became a uh, member of the commissioner for your city there of Altamont Springs, Florida. Tell us about that election. We just have about two minutes before the break, but just give us a little rundown of what it was like to run sure. for being a commissioner there. I can, and I can make it brief because it was a short story. I decided I wanted to run because I felt that um, I needed to, after advising so many people to run and so many libertarians, I thought i got to do this myself now that I have a chance. And uh, found a, a race where there was a sitting incumbent, been there a long time, and had not had an opponent. And uh, so I decided to wait until the last minute to file and qualify so that he wouldn't know I was coming, uh, keeping it a secret. And I, in that time period, I, of course, laid my plans and prepared very well for a very hard-fought campaign. Um, and hope, hopefully catching him a bit by surprise so he wouldn't have time to marshal his resources. And um, apparently that worked because um, I waited until the last, uh, almost the last day to file my paperwork. And um, on the last day, he he decided, it, he took a look at that and said, I, I just am not up to, I'm not, I don't care enough, I guess. Huh. He withdrew. So I ended up being uh, unopposed. And so uh, it was a short, sweet campaign. Uh, I, I always say I was actually disappointed. I was looking forward to it. He he jerked the thrill of victory uh, from <laughs> <laughs> from the jaws of the election, I guess, or somehow ever mangled. I I've done that expression, but anyway, uh, I I missed the thrill of victory as much maybe, but I I uh, I did not um, have an opponent in that race the first time, so. Well, you you are a libertarian. We believe in competition, and uh, that's just what you said there. And we'll come back after this break and talk about what it was like being a commissioner, which I guess is like a city council member uh, in the city of yeah, Altamont yeah. Springs in, in Florida, and what it was like being a libertarian there, what your problems were, your successes, and, and the rest after these few words. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Libertarian Party is the third largest political party in the United States, and it's more successful than ever. We don't just talk the talk of individual liberty and free markets. We also walk the walk. Libertarian Party candidates are getting elected to office across the United States, and we are making a difference. The Libertarian Party is also the only third party that routinely has ballot access in every state. Our achievements and influence grow every year, and you can be part of that success. You can register as a Libertarian Party voter in your state to help us achieve easier ballot access. You can also visit lp.org today 
to become a member of the Libertarian Party, no matter which party you register with. Join the Libertarian Party today at lp.org. Together, we can move mountains. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray. To find out more about Judge Gray, visit JudgeJimGray.com. That's JudgeJimGray.com. Now, back to All Rise. Well, welcome back. And after hearing a kind of a promo for the Libertarian Party, uh, this is Judge Jim Gray again on All Rise with my esteemed guest, truly libertarian credentialed Jim Turney, who is the commissioner from Altamont Springs, Florida. And uh, in fact, you you still are now, I believe. But tell us, Jim, what it was like. You you told us that you won, in effect, uh, <laughs> you, you didn't back into it. You, you scared away the competition. But but uh, what was it like being a commissioner and, and uh, or basically city council? And uh, what types of uh, problems did you have? How is the government different because they had a libertarian on there uh, than before? Well, I have been very lucky, and one of the fortunate things is that I uh, had family, as you pointed out, since 69. I've lived there off and on, but uh, constantly for the last five years. But uh, but from 1969, uh, mother, father, brother, sister, daughter living in that area. So uh, the, um, uh, the city is, it sort of found me, I guess you'd say. Um, I I found a city there that was, um, you could say, very libertarian in a lot of ways because we have zero debt. It's a very rare thing to say that, uh, even at the city level. We're a sizable city, uh, and um, we I can't find another city, even half our size, that is... Uh, uh, that has zero debt, um, and it's so it's uh, it's not always had zero debt, but it's had zero debt for the last ten years, and let's hope we'll keep it that way. Uh, I think a fight coming might be to hold the line on that, however, um, and uh, but in general, the city um, it stays pared down in uh, very physically responsible, not just by because of debt, but in other ways. And uh, it's a very, the political culture in Altamont, is, Altamont Springs is very different than even the other cities that border us. Uh, we have very little controversy. Our city staff is very professional, and they don't uh, do things that stir up uh, the citizens much. So it's a rather calm place uh, to serve, and I'm very fortunate in that regard. So I how honestly boring. Can say that, how, how boring. Uh, yeah, My boring, goodness, boring. no controversy. <laughs> Might be a good word to describe, uh, <laughs> but in this case, that could be a good thing. So I haven't I really say. had those kind of tooth and nail fights that a lot of libertarians have to confront uh, in their local government with all kinds of crazy initiatives being proposed that um, uh, roil the waters, upset citizens, uh, get get sure. uh, emotions running. Uh, we really haven't had that in my term. I did get reelected uh, last year, so uh, we they only serve two-year terms. Uh, so there's frequently an election. There's one next year. Um, and um, 
so, um, but I, I have been fortunate to, uh, be in a place that I didn't feel I had to make a lot of difference. There wasn't Good. the things coming up that, that I felt like, oh my, I've got to stop this. I've got to, or I've got to get this done or that done. It's not that there isn't anything like that, but there are no big stories about that. And I've just Good. been lucky on that. But one will, one will come and I'll be ready for okay. the fight. You know, uh, last June 19th, we had uh, Ethan Reynolds, who was the mayor of the city of New Carlisle in Ohio on All Rise. And he was saying that it was quite a different story and that he began by being one out of seven and then people converted to an, and elected more. But, oh, gosh, they had, for example, they belonged to a commission that they never got anything out of and paid $12,000. And just nobody ever looked at it and that they were getting magazines that, you know, hundreds of dollars a, a month that nobody was looking at. Just just taking an audit just of their city government, they were able to reduce their expenses rather substantially without cutting back any positions. Did did you have any of those issues arise? Did you did you have an audit of your of your uh, city budget that would actually be looked at and, and pared down or, or or not? Well we have uh, there's several kinds of audits, and we, of course, have a, a very thorough audit every year, but it uh, doesn't necessarily look for some of those, like, down to the level of, is this magazine subscription necessary? I don't think it looks at that level. But we come out with um, a very um, high marks with, from our auditor all the time, um, like our pension fund, for example, for our employees is very well financed to, you know, better than 90 some odd percent of the cities in America. So it's, um, uh, you know, it's very fiscally responsible, like I said. And, uh, so that keeps coming out in the audit. But there is another kind of audit that, uh, looks, uh, let's say, maybe you could say deeper, uh, specifically looking maybe for, let's say, um, some kind of um, illegal activity, um, you know, uh, that would not be found by uh, looking at the books. But um, that is done by the state, and that uh, we have not had one in quite a while. So I've actually been contemplating, since you brought up audits, um, looking into whether we can uh, it, it cost cost the city a lot of money to do one like that, but since it's been a long time, um, it may be time to uh, go for that and find out, especially now because uh, this COVID crisis has created, uh, just like for business and individuals, it's created uh, quite a, a change in the city and county level of government uh, uh, finances, and um, so I'm looking forward to. It's, that's all been that's all new, of course. So we're just getting ready to go into our period here in July of uh, the budget analysis for next year. Sure. Uh, so that will be uh, that's that's now coming up on my agenda big time. <laughs> Since you brought that up, but I'll know more in a couple of months. Uh, sure. as we go through the process to see how our income and our expenses are being affected um, differently than, than we would have expected. Sure. And that will well, be a like, good time to look at places to cut because good. we're obviously going to probably have a less income. Well, just like any family or any company, I mean, you just have to, to roll with those punches. But you said something that surprised me, Jim, that in today's world, I don't feel that any government should provide pensions. Uh, 
you have your commitments, you have to keep them. But the rule is, if you're digging a hole for yourself, stop digging. And I would I would have all new employees go to a 401k program. Have, have has your city gone into that as well? Because all companies pretty much have gone to 401ks. You know how much you're having to spend. You you don't owe anything on it. You just uh, pay as you go. And and isn't that something that should be coming for all government entities from your standpoint, Jim? Yes, it's our pension plan is run very much like private. Um, it's a um, um, it's a defined uh, contribution, not a defined benefit. So it's um, uh, a it's not it's funded by the employees, but also well by the taxpayers in part. I mean, we share uh, just like um, I guess just like an employer will partly fund the retirement as part of the offer a benefit, if you will, um, you know, to come work for us, uh, kind of thing. So we're, we're, uh, we're not, we're very standard in, in terms of what that benefit looks like compared to other cities. We're not gifting people or benefiting them greatly compared to other cities, other than the fact that ours is very well managed. So employees are well aware that if they come to work for this city, they are um, much more likely to not run into a problem in their retirement of not getting what they've been yeah. promised and expecting. Whereas in other cities, of sure. course, um, they could very well run into that problem. Uh, in fact, many governmental entities at the federal, state, and local level, especially at the state and local level, have that problem because they've not been responsible with the pension monies and how they've invested them, and uh, they've often treated them like a piggy bank to be robbed. The federal government does that, of course, with Social Security, the difference being that the federal government can print money to uh, make up for it in a way that's uh, extraordinary because the dollar is the world's reserve currency, so everybody wants it to succeed. Uh, If other countries behaved like the United States, uh, they wouldn't get away with it as long as the United States could um, because of that reserve currency uh, benefit that Americans get, the American government. But So we'll see how that rolls, but obviously at some point that's going to collapse. However... um, uh, ours is based on private investment. So, if some, so the way, the only way our pension plan would not work would be a very similar to why it wouldn't work for if it was privately, uh, entirely private uh, business sure. and insurance. Um, it would depend on the stock market and bonds and, and the bond market and things like that collapsing or not doing well. Sure. So, well, and, I, we even have international investments. So. Good. Well, as well it might. I've always felt that politicians do not care generally about the future. They only care about the next election. And that's what we're seeing, that as long as, you know, I'm able to pay off my people and get my votes now, we'll let somebody else worry about the deficit and and the deficit spending and the pensions and the rest. But that's certainly not libertarian. But you were the chair. You were the elected chair for the Libertarian Party National Committee, which is the, the guiding organization back in 1985, 1987. Uh, how did that happen? And uh, I assume that the internal politics there is ruthless as anywhere else. Is that accurate? <laughs> yeah, it did get pretty ruthless. Uh, we we had in uh, uh, a major part of the story of the Libertarian Party. Our history is that we had a big split in um, the nineteen eighty three convention, which is in those days we nominated because of 
state ballot access laws. We had to nominate our presidential uh, ticket one year before the election so that we could go through all of the various bureaucratic hurdles uh, of ballot access. So our 1983 presidential nominating convention for the 84 election uh, ended up, uh, it was in New York City, and it ended up with a big split and uh, in the party and um, uh, really cost us, it set us back badly. So the next national convention in 1985, we had a, a lot of problems in both structurally, financially, but even in terms of leadership. I, I looked out, I could see nobody really wanted to be running this show. And uh, so I said, well, I tried to recruit a, a somebody for chair. I couldn't find anybody who's willing to do it. So I said, okay, well, I'll do it. I'll put my hat in the ring so that and it, until somebody better qualified comes along. And in the end, I didn't feel that the folks who came along were better qualified. Um, and uh, I won uh, that election, and um, uh, I handily won re-election the following convention, which I was, uh, of course, chairing that convention where I was re-elected, and uh, the Libertarian Party had become attractive enough in those two years by paying off our debt, since we were just talking about debt. We, I inherited a huge debt in 85. I managed to get it paid off. Um, by in my first term. So when we met again in 1987, again, a presidential nominating convention, we were able to attract two very well-known and respected people, um, one of whom, at least, uh, everybody in the libertarian sphere will know, and that was Ron Paul. And he won the nomination. He ran for president as a libertarian in 1988. But it, it was uh, quite a... Uh, choice we had as an option Russell Means, which if you go outside of the Libertarian Party circles, you'll find a lot of people who know Russell Means, uh, who was widely known as being a leader of the American Indian movement and a television and movie actor. Um, and he was a Lakota Sioux, uh, looked every part when you met him and, and or even saw him on, on TV, he looked every part, the uh, the Native American brave or warrior, <laughs> and uh, it was it was um, tremendous personality, and um, he tried for our nomination for president, and he still called himself a libertarian and and uh, registered with the party and was a member of the party until he died about I guess it's been ten or twelve years ago now, uh, so it was quite a exciting convention, and us proud to get reelected and proud to chair that and, and proud of how the Libertarian Party had been able to sort of come back um, from a, a, a dark place to a, being attractive enough to, to get those kind of candidates. Well, just accept our appreciation, Jim, because you're, you're there on the spot and uh, you've done it, I'm sure, in your city, and you've certainly helped our Libertarian Party through some, some hard times. And speaking of hard times, too, we do have this COVID-19 situation. Uh, I've gone on record often as saying that politicians reacted politically. That is, you know, if you're a mayor or a governor, that you're going to do everything, in effect, to protect yourself politically. So I'm going to do everything I can to keep you healthy. Uh, okay, I'm going to take away tens of millions of people's jobs along the way and run hundreds of thousands of 
businesses closed and frequently never to reopen. But if you stay healthy, I was successful. I'm a hero. And if you get sick, well, I did everything I could, so you can't blame me. And that's basically what I view we have seen here. It's decimating our economy. We haven't felt the, the backlash nearly strongly enough yet. But uh, what is your view, particularly with your city and the COVID-19 situation, or your view of other governments as to how they responded, both state, local, and federal? Well, I think uh, all those levels of government have overreacted, especially based on the science. I will say that, um, especially in the very early days of this um, discovery of this virus and, and, and trying to learn about how it uh, behaved, that uh, there was a lot of unknowns. There wasn't much science, you could say, that was at least you know very specific to this virus. Uh, so... So there's a little bit of leeway there at the beginning, but it became very clear very quickly that um, that the general population had extraordinarily low risk for a serious consequence, um, but that there are certain people that are ex- at very high risk. Even they would generally not die if they got the virus, but they would um, they would might be hospitalized, and of course we all heard the term early on that you know we want to um, you know lower the lower the curve you know get get um, flatten the curve I'm sorry flatten the curve so that we don't uh, have additional deaths because our medical facilities are overwhelmed and uh, so that obviously uh, we except in a few areas like Brooklyn New York. Um, some very specific areas we did not see uh, that happen, but uh, but it became pretty clear once we did start seeing who was going to the hospital that it was uh, the people at risk and that needed to be protected were uh, older folks with pre-existing uh, known conditions, COPD, diabetes, uh, uh, a short list, but there's others and those are the people who are really at risk and um, so we needed to really focus on protecting them and 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 like in many others uh, situations like uh, the the initial testing that was uh, uh, scandal I guess is the way to put it of, of how the federal government handled uh, testing um, the uh, the same thing happened like in New York with the retirement homes. They were putting people who still had the virus to retirement homes, sending them back to retirement homes and and uh, assisted living facilities and so on. And, of course, then those became, uh, they infected other people. And so they had a huge number of deaths there uh, in that situation. We've had a bit of that in Florida here. Um, uh, happen, but uh, but it's been uh, much less of a story. But still, almost all the deaths are for, for people that are not of working age, and even in that category, there are people with almost always had pre-existing. So, knowing that uh, that should change and shape the response, we did not need to especially for so long, lockdown businesses, close them down. Um, I do think uh, personally that being as a libertarian, I don't want to hurt other people. And so because of that and because anybody could have this virus, since most people who get it apparently don't show symptoms or very mild symptoms, so you could have it and spread it to somebody who may be at risk, uh, I think it's wise to wear a mask. 
because that doesn't protect you. That protects somebody else. And that's a basic tenet, in my view, of libertarianism. Uh, you know, we believe in individual responsibility. We believe that you might be doing your best to drive your car safely down the road, but if you make a mistake and miss that stop sign or whatever, and you hurt somebody else, property damage or physically harm their their health or kill them, you're responsible still. And we should, and it's the same thing with uh, COVID. You might not know you have the virus. You might not realize that you're potentially doing somebody harm. And um, so it's wise to, uh, to make an individual choice. Uh, I'm not in favor of government mandating the mask, in other words, but individuals should uh, make a choice and uh, to, to, uh, help others and not hurt and not harm others. Well, we have seen, Jim, that government, and I'll go back to my leaving the Republican Party with the passage of the so-called Patriot Act. I'd actually heard, and I can't track it down, so I don't know, but heard that it actually had been on the shelf. It had been written a year or so before. They just used the fear of 9-11 to get it to be passed. And now the fear of the COVID-19, we're talking about passing legislation, tracking people. And, you know, if they can carry you, if your cell phone, the government can tell where you are at any moment. And, of course, using that as a basis. Oh, well, if you came into contact for more than five minutes with somebody that had the virus, then we're going to help you. We're going to protect you. But but it's that it's that fear that is now going to have big, big brother knowing exactly where we go who we contact, all the rest. Same thing with our, you know, our phone calls. That goes back to the Patriot Act. But will it ever be over? I mean, if we pass this, will there ever be a politician that's brave enough to say, okay, well, that war on terror is now over. We can rescind this. Or the, the fear for the, for the COVID virus now, it'll never be back. It's over. It, it's never over. So we're, we're using this fear, in my opinion, to engage in more attacks upon our civil liberties. Are you concerned as I am about this? Very. Um, yeah, I wasn't thinking of that aspect when I first answered your question, but looking to the future, I think we're going to see a lot of, uh, of uh, favorable reaction by enough people and to, to uh, support their representative uh, leaders to passing laws that are uh, very intrusive, going further than they could have ever imagined before in some of the ways that you just described, and uh, it's very difficult to roll it back, as we've discovered even this spring. Uh, the Senate uh, refused to uh, roll back the uh, idea that the government should be able, without a warrant, to uh, search your searches, <laughs> to, to look and examine your Internet searches to see, and search terms, you know, to see what what you're um, looking at. And that's an element of that Patriot Act surveillance. So it's very difficult uh, to roll it back once you've got it. And of course, it's true. The government has tremendous power in theory. That means they can get bad guys. It means that it's sort of like, you know, the old uh, thing from the 1930s, one of the big gangsters was asked, why did he rob banks? And he said, because that's where the money is. Well, that's the same way with all of this uh, information and, and surveillance power. Um, it attracts bad guys because that's where the data is that they need to control society, to eliminate in the worst meaning of that term, their enemies, and um, 
and and control things. So yes. we're go- we're in effect inviting a more totalitarian style of government by giving power to the government to do these things, being okay with it, that attracts the people who want to abuse that kind of power. And so it's a very dangerous situation, um, and I hope that um, uh, some Republicans and Democrats will join libertarians in speaking up against this and stopping it before it gets too far or rolling back. Actually, yes. what we've are, we've had a lot of it already. Much more. The drug war was Truly. a tremendous and extraordinary erosion of our civil liberties. Most of which people are unaware of because it didn't affect them personally. It's more or less it's what's sure. on the books as opposed to what's in practice. But the power is there, and I'm sure you're more aware of it than most people. How destructive on our civil liberties the drug war was. The war on terror only made it worse. And uh, now the war on viruses will make it even worse. Yeah, Jim, we only have maybe a minute left. I'd just be interested in your thought. Uh, I think that we, our government, kept Fidel Castro in power because we had an embargo there. So he could legitimately say everything went wrong was our fault. Uh, What's the view now of the relations with Cuba? Should they be normalized, according to people in Florida? Because I'd normalize them in a heartbeat. Well, yeah, it's, it's, that's a big fight, a policy fight, because there's a lot of people who understand what you just said is true. And that, you know, emotionally, though, a lot of people, as Cuban-Americans that we have in Florida, a large population of them, they just um, are so appalled by what's happened in their country and to their family that they they just like to do anything that, you know, yeah. makes that fights them, <laughs> and, make, and, sure. and so sometimes the reaction is emotional rather than intellectual. Um, and but yes, mo- many. It's, it's so it's still a policy fight as to how yep. to um, deal with that uh, power. But you're right. We've in effect uh, our, our actions that might have been intended had good intentions to to stop communism. They ended up aiding and abetting in some fashion. I uh, fear so. The, well- we could go on and on, Jim. Uh, we've, we've run out of time, but but thank you for what you've done. Uh, the city of Alton, Altamont Springs, uh, Florida, thanks you. We hold you up as a leader uh, in the Libertarian Party. You have helped us in need. You continue to, and I just thank you for being with us here on All Rise. We'll try to do it again, but, but appreciate your being with thank us. Thank you for what you've done. I appreciate your very valuable contribution. We didn't talk well, about that. I'd like to have had a minute to talk <laughs> about that, so let's talk again. <laughs> okay, look forward to it. Thanks so much. And, and again, tune in to All Rise next week or anytime on demand. Hear good people like Jim Turney and others. In the meantime, this is Judge Jim Gray saying thank you for being with us and life is good. Thanks for listening today. All Rise, the Libertarian Way with retired Judge Jim Gray can be heard every Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time and 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We know you'll want to join us again next week and tell your friends that help is on the way. Strengthen my thoughts that help us control.